Welcome to C-Suite Radio. Holy Harfin! Welcome to another episode of the Open Mic Podcast. Excellent! With your host, Brad Allen. Well, isn't that extra special? Recorded live at Bay Area Studios. Join Brett each week as he interviews celebrities, influencers, authors, high-level entrepreneurs, and much more. At the open mic, no topic is off limits. Giddy up. And you never know who may stop by. Now, here's your host, Brett Allen. What's up, everybody? Happy Saturday. Welcome into another edition of the show. It's been a little bit since we've released an episode. We just took a little bit of a break, uh, just kind of gearing up and getting into the rhythm of homeschooling and all of that sort of thing. But today we have a fantastic and special guest, Darren Prince. He is a celebrity and sports marketing agent. He has an incredible story. And uh, the title of this episode is Hitting Bottom at the Top. Darren is the absolute best, and he just shared is a fantastic story of his recovery of opioid addiction and how really no matter what our circumstances are they can be turned around with just a little bit of initiative a little bit of hope and a little bit of focus i think you're going to enjoy this he is a agent to folks like magic johnson hulk hogan carmen electra the list goes on and on and he is on our show today darren welcome into the podcast it's great to have you here today my friend thanks pal for having me well i've been looking forward to chatting with you for quite some time. And to be honest, your story in regards to how you approach business and your clients inspired me to start going after bigger names for my show and just your hustle and the way that you're able to leverage and things like that. So I first want to start out by saying that uh, and uh, gave me the courage to reach out to you even. So thanks for being here. But uh, you have an incredible story and an incredible book. We mentioned it early on uh, before we got on the line here about your book is Aiming High, How a Prominent Sports Agent Hit Bottom at the Top. And if you haven't read this book and you're listening, we'll put a link to it in our show notes. I, I highly recommend this book because it will inspire you. And, and the message is just fantastic. So before we get into that, what has life been like for you over the last couple months? How how has the lockdown affected you and what have you been able to do to keep busy and, and that sort of thing? Are you binge watching anything or are you just busy with life and work still? We're busy. We um I've always had this uncanny ability to 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 reinvent and I, I think have a vision to stay ahead of the curve. And most of that came from my late father. You know, it just instilled such uh, values in me in business and attentiveness and awareness. And I, I, I kind of saw this coming a couple of days into the shutdown that I was like, you know, there's so much more that Prince Marketing could be doing for all our clients in the digital space um, than we're doing right now. Because everything is typically endorsements, commercials, speaking engagements, always personal services having to be on airplanes. And so my office immediately, I sat down with them, we made that shift and you know, a, lot, a lot of, you know, social media promotions initiatives and uh you know interviews overseas uh they're always looking for content and zoom events have been incredible for prince marketing group clients but even more so for the corporations because now executives that need to be inspired and get out of their own head on any given tough day or tough week or tough month can have magic johnson zoom in and give you a little pep talk or or hulk hogan or rick flair or dennis rom and jerry west so we've had so many scotty pippen and um then it, there, a lot of them are just fun Q&A type of chats for customers that you want to keep during this time. 
And um, Denise Richards, for example, you know, we spoke probably a week into the pandemic. She has the CBD line out, and uh, it's a skin cream collection. And they wanted to wait initially, the partners, until the end of 2020. She's like, Darren, because everybody's at home right now. They're bored. They want something to feel good. Women want to put something on their face to keep that fountain of youth. Young girls want to stay young. And, you know, so we launched that. But most importantly, business aside, you know, my um, 12-year sober birthday was July 2nd. Yes. And that keeps me on that spiritual beam more than anything. Business is what I do. Recovery, advocacy, and wellness is my life. There's nothing that comes before it. So I have truly created even a better version of myself. You know, I'm, I'm always working out, but now it's, you know, six days a week and um, my balconies, I have gym equipment set up. I stay very close to my sober spiritual brothers and sisters. I do a lot of Zoom 12-step meetings and I've got the ability to come on platforms like yours during these times and tell people that, you know, you can really create the best version of yourself during such a difficult time because we're never going to have this time again. No. And I, I appreciate your honesty. I, I like that. And this is just how my mind works, but you talk about creating the best version of yourself. Like there's really no reason and I'm not shaming anybody, but there's really no reason for us to not kind of pivot our lives right and recreate because this is an unprecedented time that we have to just really be somebody different, right? It, it, it's, it's, you know, it really is truly once in a lifetime. Hopefully we never see it again, but most people get stuck in their own heads. And uh, Carmen Electra is very near and dear to me, way above even being a client. And we spoke last week and she was in Palm Springs for maybe a month and a half. Her house had to get some work done up here. And, you know, she just said, I've never felt better. She goes, I, I just got away from everything. I'm not watching the news. I'm just taking care of me. And you don't need to be a celebrity. It's just your everyday type of person. You know, we, we, we tend to, like I said, I, I get but in our own head and our own thought process. And as I say, when I speak so often is, you know, we're not responsible for our thoughts, but we are responsible for how long we want to think those thoughts. And every single one of us have the tools to get out of our own way and out of our own head. And for me, it's not just people struggling with addiction, recovery, stress, anxiety. Um, it, it's just anybody that needs help. I know I've got tough days, just like anybody else. I have tough weeks, but I know when I pick up that phone or I shoot that text message off or I FaceTime somebody that I know might be going through a tougher day. To me, it comes really clear that what I'm dealing with ultimately are luxury problems. And that's what makes me feel good about me because for so many years when I was out there getting high and living this double life, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what the sense of self was. I didn't love me. And uh, I got caught up with all the external crap. It was all about the limelight and the clients and the celebrities and the whole super agent BS. And, you know, I found myself truly in the world of spirituality and recovery. And uh, like I said, so I, I think I had a good enough foundation for when this pandemic hit to stay ahead of the curve on the business front. And most importantly, take care of me mentally and spiritually so I can get to that next level. Wow. That's I love that. <laughs> we could end right there. I mean, that just is so encouraging, and I appreciate that. I, I like the perspective of the luxury problems. I, I've heard you say that before in other interviews, and I want to ask you about that because you mentioned it. What is that definition of luxury problems versus like just 
normal life problems, if that question makes sense. Like, what, how do you differentiate those two? Look, truthfully, I've, I've had you know, some minor health issues during this pandemic. Um, I think everybody's got something going on. Um, you know, my mother's getting older. I've got other friends that were sick. I have friends that have had the uh, COVID. And, um, you know, when you have resources like a roof over your head, you know, you're not homeless. Uh, you've got people that love and care for you. They can still pick up the phone even during that tough time and know that they'll be there. Somebody will tell you to come over, spend a few days. Uh, you know, you've got the ability to just do things that people that are truly ultimately struggling can't do. It's that perspective. That you said it's that perception and that perspective that, you know, yeah, you can roll around in something all day and say this is a problem because you're waiting on, you know, this whole unemployment fiasco and it's taken an extra two, three weeks. And I can understand that because, you know, 20 something years ago, I had my financial problems I've made and lost millions twice in my lifetime. And, um, you know, I understand what that's like, but as long as you have a roof over your head, food, people that can take care of you. You know it's coming. You know it's coming. You know, if you've been approved, you know, we, we understand, again, this is an unprecedented time. And, um, you know, health issues, too. Of course, everybody's got family members, loved ones, friends that are sick and suffering with certain things. But, again, it's about, about that perspective. Joel Olstein is a friend of mine, and I always love how he talks about um, and somebody gets a flat tire on the highway and person, and I can't believe this. And why can't you just say, hey, at least I have a car? get a tire fix. You know, I have a leak in my big, beautiful mansion or my apartment. And this is crazy. I can't get the maintenance guy here. Yeah, it sucks. But you got a roof over your head. You know, oh, this food was terrible that I just ordered. Okay, well, maybe you can call, complain, get another meal sent to you or another whatever it might be delivered to the house. But, you know, that takes time and, and work because, you know, I could say it and sound like I'm, I'm perfect at it, but it's taken me quite a while to understand putting all those perspective and perception situations to that big box of luxury problems. It's really mindset, right? That's what it comes down to. Yeah, absolutely. Total mindset. Yeah. And I, I like that quote by Joel Olstein. I was just thinking about that in my head before you said it, because I heard that on another interview, the whole DoorDash thing. It's like, oh, my DoorDash order was late or it was cold or, well, hey, at least you have money to order DoorDash. Or, at least your credit card is working for, for DoorDash. Yeah, yeah. And to, yeah. Gosh. And it's interesting you mentioned the unemployment thing too, because I was laid off because of COVID. But, you know, I've been one of the fortunate ones where I haven't had any problems, where I know that there are people who are in my position. I mean, you could see I have a roof over my head, I have a place to live, I have my kid, you know, and it, the problem can't last forever, right? They have to solve it somehow, some way. I like that definition. Um, and yeah, thankfully the credit card's working to get my, uh, you know, Buffalo Wild Wings delivered to my house so I don't have to leave, you know, and I can watch, you know, movies on my 65 inch flat screen that's hanging back here exactly. that I bought before the pandemic. And yeah. at first I was like, crap, why did I buy this stupid thing? And then I'm like, movie theater shut down. I have a six year old. Now we can watch movies at home. So we watch Black Panther all day long. Uh, that's his new thing is Black Panther all day long. So and now, yeah, it's crazy. You've to you've told this story multiple, multiple times. And, and I, I love this. But I find the interesting thing about this is that you were 14 and you were at sleepaway camp. 
and you were experiencing what was probably not labeled then, but now we would say probably anxiety or whatever the case might be. You went to the nurse. She gave you this green potion. Uh And I find this story just so hauntingly it, I just it's hard for me to wrap my mind around it because I've I've watched multiple interviews that you've been on and you tell the story and every time I hear it, it's like hearing it for the first time. Like just that moment, because I know oftentimes addiction I think can be blamed on genetics and I don't believe or support that. I don't think it's always that case. I think it can be other things, right? Or, or or it's not even a generational thing. I think it's just, it can happen like unwittingly for you, I think is what happened. Looking back on that moment. And, and I think I even heard you say or read somewhere that if they did something like that for adults, my God, they would make millions of dollars. Right. You know, if you didn't have moral compass or you know, that would be a great thing you could come up with and go, Hey, come hang out with a celebrity. (laughs) And, uh, and I joke about it, but in all seriousness, it's crazy. Looking back on that moment, do you think that she was genuinely trying to help you and wanted to see you get better? Cause I know you mentioned that she had kind of asked you a few times, or was it just a different time at that point in life? And she just was kind of doing this because it was the thing to do. You know, I was, 14 with excruciating stomach cramps and didn't know what it was. So when the counselor took me to see her, I'll never forget her name, Greta. And she gave me the cough syrup cup and it tasted lousy. But within two, three minutes, all the insecurities, the inadequacies that I had in my heart and my soul and my mind went away. The feeling of less than, not ever feeling a part of, feeling different, being classified as having a severe learning disability, feeling dumb. And not like everybody else and uh, a little bit gawky in in my awkward stages. And it it was a magic potion. Like you said, I went back to the bunk. The guys are laughing with me, not at me. I got the courage to flirt with 20 girls next door. I remember just after I was done making all the guys laugh, I ran next door by myself and the next bunk. And I walk in and they were like, look, stunned. And then the minute I started talking, everyone's laughing. Oh, my God, you're so funny. You're so funny there. And. You know, I needed more of it. I was like, wow, this is this, this is amazing. And, you know, went to bed that night thinking nothing of it and did all my activities the next day. And the very next night, I'm lying in the bunk, but there was no stomach pains, no anxiety. And uh, all I was obsessing about was that feeling the night before. So I learned to lie and cheat in that moment at 14. And I healed over and I told the couch, my stomach's killing me. We've got to go back to see that nurse. And you know, I did it for a few weeks. Again, it wasn't more than one cup a night, and she knew it was helping me sleep. And when mom and dad came up for visitation day, my mom found that I was taking liquid Demerol. Obviously, went ballistic, and that was the end of that. But, you know, it, it wasn't Greta's fault, the nurse, not at all, because three months later, I had the same experience at a dentist appointment, getting my wisdom teeth removed. And uh, he gave my mom these white pills. I had no idea what they were, and I took two of them, and I went upstairs after the surgery, and it's flying high. I'm on the phone calling everybody. This is amazing. What the hell are these things? And uh, three days later, I was out and um, went downstairs and held my cheek. There was no more pain and started putting on the crocodile tears and told my mom, I think I have a bad infection. we got to go back to the dentist. I think you need to call them for more pain pills. And um, as a loving mother who wants to see their son suffer, right? So she took him back to the dentist and uh, I conned him into giving me three more days of those pills that I now know were Vicod and extra strength. And, um, you know, so, uh, you know, I always hear that genetic thing. And Jay Shetty's a friend of mine. who made a comment on one of his posts and kind of started this war about people saying, is it genetic? Is it not genetic? Uh, you know, 
some people calling me careless, reckless. And I honestly believe I don't. Yeah. Is there the likelihood of people in your household um, being uh, addicts or alcoholics that you're more likely to become one? Absolutely. To me, you do not get addicted to drugs and alcohol. You get addicted to the feeling of the drugs and alcohol to give you an escape. So what the heck are we trying to escape from? Me, insecurity, feeling of less than anxiety, nervousness, uncomfortability in my own skin. You know, nobody truly gets addicted to the substance. You know, you're covering or masking up something. And, uh, you know, but like I said, you know, genetically, yeah, Dr. Drew is a friend of mine. We've gotten into it before discussing it. And I understand the way the medical industry is with it. But I know a lot of friends that had drug addicts or alcoholics, moms and dad, and they never picked up a thing in their life. So why does the psycho get broken with that? You know, if it was genetics, I think you'd be batting 100%, 100 out of 100. Yeah, those, yeah. You know? Yeah. Like not that I'm saying that if it's in that household, in that environment, yeah, probably more than not, I would imagine most people have picked up. But, you know, my mother's side of the family, I think my grandfather, you know, liked his alcohol. I think uh, my, my grandfather on my, on my um, father's side um, had a terrible, terrible arthritis, and I know was an alcoholic, but more for the pain. And uh, that's just how they knew how to treat it. And, um, you know, I didn't grow up in a household where I ever saw my parents drinking or two drugs, you know, and uh, if there was ever pills in the house, yeah, I was in experimental stage, not just in my mom's house. I took them from other people's houses as a teenager. That's the things that we did. We were always looking for Percocets, Vicodins, uh, Valium, Xanax. And uh, it was like, you know, Back then in the 80s, it was like a big score. You have a big party with a bunch of your friends. And, um, hey, we all thought we were having a good time. But to be honest with you, every single one of us had some deep-rooted issues that we didn't want to address. You know, we just did what we did and thought it was a blast and thought we were having a great time. I say it like this. I went to a party at sleepaway camp, a drug party at 14 that the nurse gave me. And I didn't leave until I was suicidal at 38 years old. Just your your life was normal. Like you had loving parents that supported you. So I, I really, I like this idea of it not necessarily being genetic all the time. I think we can be heavily influenced. You know, I've, I've had people tell me I got divorced because my parents got divorced. If my son, when he grows up and he gets married, the likelihood of him getting divorced is high and it's a genetic thing. I don't like to hear that because it irritates me. I I have to go. I was part of the problem and I was part of the reason why the marriage didn't work out. I can't blame genetics or influence necessarily on decisions I made, right? Because it didn't work out. And so I I like this concept of taking ownership and, and, and here you are now and life is just not the same for you on multiple different levels. You've had such an interesting story and it it intrigues me at the fact that at 14, you started doing baseball cards now and and then you sold that and then you moved on to brokering deals for autographs. And I guess my, my question kind of switching gears here to the business side of things, is this something, this idea and ability that you have to do this, was this something that was innate in you from a young age or is this something that you learned? I know, you know, it's not who you, it's not what you know, but who you know, right? So, I mean, how did this all start for you? Like, what drove you to even want to do this? My friends, probably around 14, 13, baseball cards became kind of corny and uncool and they weren't popular anymore. So, I would either 
buy their collections. I had three different side jobs, squeezing orange juice at a supermarket, delivering newspapers and working as a, at a, as a busboy at a place called Don's, a diner in town. And I would just take all that money and I would either go to garage sales, have my parents drop me off and buy cards. And um, my friend Steve Simon, who actually is the VP of my agency now, we go back uh, 40 years, we would go. And um, with no plan to sell them, but in my mind, I had something worth money. And then all my friends ever go out and party around those ages, 13, 12, 14, and kind of hang out, whatever partying meant back then at house, you know, hanging out different people's houses. I didn't care about that stuff. I didn't care about girls. I, I just would just be immersed into my baseball card collection. And one day, my uh, one of my biggest inspirational inspirations teacher-wise is Elliot Lova, who I just spoke to a few weeks ago. He was, a, um, he was also the tennis coach, won multiple state championships. And he, um, very near and dear to me, we had an intro to business class. It was the only class I ever got an A in my entire life. And he asked us to go home and create a business overnight. And I want everybody to come back with like a, a one page typed up really nice on what your business is going to be. And I remember, you know, I was so excited to get home and I, um, I went upstairs and I looked at all my baseball cards and back then there was really no computers. I, I think you have like the old Microsoft or IBM and <laughs> yeah, I know and a notepad and I have this price guide called Current Card Price Guide, CCP. Anybody that's the that's from the OG era of baseball cards remembers it long before Beckett. And I go yes. upstairs to my dad. And I said, Dad, I said, I'm st- I, I want to start a business. I go, I need insurance on my baseball cards. What do you need? I go, well, look, if there's ever a fire or water damage, um, I had no idea really, though, how to start the business. And he's like, all right, what do you need? And I said, about eight or nine. So he goes, okay, I'll get you insurance for a thousand dollars just just in case anything happens to him and i'm in my pajamas I'm, i remember pulling at him like dad no 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 eight or nine thousand crazy like his son's you know got two heads on he goes what do you mean eight or nine thousand well, where would you get eight or nine thousand with the baseball cards and and who would buy them so i run back upstairs the local newspaper the west essex tribune in livingston new jersey had a little ad for a baseball card show at the holiday inn on route 10 and two brothers were running it. And it was maybe $25 to get a table. So I run back downstairs. I show my dad. I go, look, this is a show. I can buy a table and I can try to sell this stuff in a couple of weeks and buy, sell, and trade. It sounds like it's kind of fun. And um, that little challenge, that little push, um, Steve Simon, again, we shared that table. We split whatever the cost was. And he went into it for a hobby. He had no desire to make a business out of it. And I was up every single night. My dad had a typesetting and design company. And I had them make beautiful signs where my four foot display was going to be the nicest one in the, in the room. And um, I remember getting up at five o'clock that morning at the baseball card show. It was a family affair. My mom came, my dad came, my grandmother Francis came. And uh, when I walked into that room, I felt alive for the first time in my life. I felt a part of something. I felt like I was part of something very, very special and I was going to make an imprint on my life and show people that Darren Prince isn't the idiot with the learning disability in the back of the room or the small classrooms. And I lit up and I made over a thousand dollars in profit on that Sunday afternoon. And I mean, just coming from an old school Jewish family, um, it was incredible. I mean, I remember coming up with a bunch of cash and I traded and I bought and I was in the middle of the room and everybody wanted to talk to me and I didn't eat drugs in my system. And, um, you know, I was smart too with my friends because a lot of them cared about like Don Mattingly, Wade Boggs, Daryl Strawberry, Roger Clements, Kirby Puckett. 
I would take their old cards trading them. I would take the Mickey Mantles, the Willie Mays, the Hank Aarons, because in the back of my mind, I knew they got them from their fathers, their uncles, or their grandfathers. Nobody knew who they were, but I knew they were worth a lot more money. So I was like, sure, take the popular guys. I'll take the expensive ones. And uh, (laughs) that's it. And then by by, by the time I was 16 years old, uh, within a year or two, I started getting national recognition in newspapers. And there was no internet back then and radio interviews and um, the business blew up. I was the only probably kid, teacher, parent in town that had a cell phone at 16 years old. It was called Bell Atlantic back then. And it was a big aluminum bottom battery in a leather case. <laughs> yeah. A rubber antenna. And it was $3 a minute for the phone call. And I remember when the first bill came in, my dad went nuts. He goes, how the heck can you spend $1,100 on a... And I sat down with him. I showed him all the sales and... I think that month I made over $30,000 brokering sales for stockbrokers. That's what started happening. I developed this network and these relationships going to different shows in the tri-state area. And they would literally call me in between class. I'd go on my lock. I'd check the phone, call them, hey, I need a Mickey Mantle working. I'm looking for this. I'm looking for that. And I just became a broker of high-end baseball cards for, for several years. Wow. Do you still have some of those cards laying around just for sentimental yeah, value at this point? I man. I... I don't. I was emailing um, my good friends, Darren Ravel and Ken Gold. And about a month and a half ago, I was flying back, I think, from a trip in New Jersey. I went back to see some friends and family. And I had an unopened 52 Tops wax box. I sold two Honus Wagner cards. I had uh, uh, just the most amazing stuff back then. Kenny told me one of the Wagners that adds probably worth about $3 million now. And the 52 box is about two and a half to $3 million. I have pictures of me holding it in my early 20s. And, uh, you know, back then you don't think about it because you're in the business. Um, the most iconic dealer passed away a month before my dad in January 2017. You probably don't know the name, Alan Mr. Mint Rosen. And he's the one that the reason the industry is alive and better than ever today. He was the OG, the godfather. That was our mouthpiece. Sports Illustrated did articles on him. He was, you know, he was a mega PR magnet. And um, he basically educated Wall Street that, you know, this is here to stay. This is as blue chip as anything. And he always said, turn and burn the money, baby. Turn and burn the money. You know, just use that money and flip it 10, 20 times over the next three, four months. You can't hold your stuff. And that was always my mindset. You know, if I bought something, a card for 50000 sold it for sixty. I took that sixty. I rolled in and out of more deals and a lot better than just sitting on something for 10 years. But in hindsight, yeah, a few of them would have been a lot better sitting on it because I think the last Wagner card I sold was in 1992 for a hundred and. 20,000 to an oil tycoon in Houston, Texas. And I was thrilled because I bought it for 85,000 the weekend before. So, you know, 22 years old. And I was like, damn, I just made 35,000 in a day. And uh, yeah, that card, you know, it's worth over 3 million now. Wow. Yeah. I I think we're pretty close in the same age. And I I collected baseball cards. And I, of course, I had the Ken Griffey's and the Strawberries, you know, the George Brett's, all of those. And I still have a box of cards that I keep in a storage unit along with other things, temp controlled, because they're just so valuable, at least sentimentally right i mean i don't know i I, it's funny because i see sometimes on facebook marketplace people trying to sell these crazy cards and i'm like those days are long gone nobody's gonna pay five thousand dollars you know for unless you're a fan of that person you know it's it's a case i think where beauty really is in the eye of the beholder because can you imagine like if you were doing this 
then, but we had all this technology and computers and social media. Good Lord, my friends, what a killing it would be. I, I can't even imagine. I mean, back then was such a special time, but you know, I was talking to Gary Vee at the National last year. Um, a lot of these big influencers and world changers, I mean, they're so behind it because they see what's happening with the graded card market and the autograph trade uh, market. I think a uh, 86 Fleer basketball wax case, which is Jordan's rookie, just sold at auction for like a million eight. I mean, I was buying them for $150 back in the day, you know? Nobody knew, you know, and I'd flip them for 300 250 and be thrilled. Wow. I mean, the same goes for, I remember we had these cast iron Star Wars figures and all of these, all like, yeah. all of it. And it just sat in a basement, you know, and we didn't think anything about it. We're like, oh, this is cool. Yeah. Set them on fire, you know, blowtorch <laughs> them. <laughs> yeah. And uh, now, you know, people are just... I could talk about this with you for hours. This is oh, crazy. When I get started. I can't even tell you how many of my friends, how many of my agent colleagues are just like enamored to hear these stories. It, it, I, I've got the greatest life in the world and all my clients are family to me, but nothing will ever replace those baseball card days. It was the most magical time in my life. It was. Wow. We were superstars. I mean, I was... I, I, I'm not, I'm not a person that, you know, has an ego anymore, but I was one of the original, probably five or six OGs. People will tell you that. I mean, Baseball Card City, we were at the forefront of the industry, Prince of Cards. We were, when I changed the Prince of Cards, we were, we were at the forefront end of the industry. And the only reason why I got out of it for the uh, autograph signing business and the memorabilia was because uh, the sexiness and the coolness of being around celebrities, which I think was some, again, some other deep rooted insecurity within myself. Like, wait a minute, this is great. See, you know, these athletes waiting in line all you know, fans waiting in line all day. And then you can ask them to sit in a hotel room too and sign hundreds of items and pay them and sell this stuff. And Muhammad Ali was the first one. I went for the biggest name in the world. And I, you know, through his agent, who's one of my closest friends uh, in the world to this day, Harlan Werner, he, he put me, set me up with Muhammad in 1993, 1994 for my first signing. And then I got rid of all the baseball cards and moved into that for a few years. Wow. Such an incredible story. I, I just mind boggling to me. I, I, I mean, being at 46 and I haven't thought about this in decades. Well, uh, years, you know, like the whole baseball card thing. Um, it's just fun. It, it's bringing back some great memories, my friend. So here we are now. You've done all this. You're, you said you just had your sobriety birthday in January. Life is just at an iconic point for you, you've had all these experiences, but ticking back just a little bit more, you go into the idea of wanting to become an agent and you tell the story in the book about you wanted to do it, but you're like, I'm not an attorney. And you're, you have this conversation and you land Magic Johnson. I think of you as like the real life Jerry Maguire, <laughs> all the positive things. And you, you, you have this ability to leverage and build relationships and just make connections with people. And Brief, tell us about Magic was your first client. So you, how did that happen? And where did it take off from there to get the next person and the next person and the next person? So from the memorabilia industry, when I had Prince of Cards, I was booking signings for and with Magic and Larry Bird and Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, uh, Chevy Chase. So what happened was in the mid-90s, I was investigated for mail fraud. It's the first time I wound up in a lot of financial trouble and potential legal trouble. But 
I wasn't charged with anything. It was brutal for a few years. I was our company, everything we were selling was from private signings. So we had no idea it was Michael Jordan memorabilia that was perfected by artists and authenticated by FBI forensic document experts that were retired and this whole big scandal. And um, I remember I lost everything. I was almost a million dollars in debt. And I took my last $3,000 and I bought two plane tickets to Alaska to go fishing, fly fishing with my dad. And he was very frugal and careful with money. And as happy as he was, he was very upset that I had like nothing left in the bank. And I didn't know when the rest was coming in. And um, I go, Dad, we need this. We need a guy's trip away. I was 25. And um, I remember being out on the boat. It was the greatest trip of my life. And um, he goes, so boy, he goes, tell me, what's your next move? What are you going to do? Are you going to rebuild the business? I know you've sent out a lot of refund letters to do the best job you can to, you know, offer refunds and keep your reputation intact. But what are you going to do? Dad, you know what? I said, I'm never going to win with all the haters and all the people that want to see you fail. I want to be an agent. You know, I really think that I could be an agent, but the problem is I'm not a lawyer. And, I, you know, I, I don't have eight years to spend going to law school. And he drops the fishing pole and he looks at me and goes, lawyer, what does that have to do with anything? I said, well, aren't agents lawyer? He goes, no. He goes, Darren, life is about who you know, not what you know. He goes, are you kidding me? You can go to Berry and Springs, Michigan right now and spend the night at Muhammad Ali's house or, uh, you know, Beverly Hills and see Magic or Indiana and see Larry Borden. Joe Frazier, Jim in Philly, and you can go up to Westchester and see Chevy Chase and his wife because people love you and they respect you and they know you made a mistake and they were all there to support you. I'd suggest you speak to Magic. You know, he, he was there m- more than anybody and, t- and, and told you he knows all about making a mistake and giving second chances. So it's like, all right, you know, maybe it's not a bad idea. So a few weeks later, it was just odd because he always had an assistant or somebody with him when we when we met up in a certain city for an appearance or a signing. And this was one time he stayed at the same hotel in Detroit. And I was supposed to knock on his door at a certain time and make sure he's ready to go downstairs into the limousine and head over, I think at the time it was Gibraltar, which isn't there anymore, this big flea market for an event that we had a signing. And um he invited me in. There was nobody in the room. And I said, hey, we're waiting on so. And so I goes, no, no, because I flew in by myself. I'm going to go see my, 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 my parents and some family members uh, once we're done here. And he goes, sit down. And uh, so we're at a table right next to each other. And he goes, how did everything work out? He goes, how are you holding up? I'm like, you know, it's tough, but just trying to stay positive and thankful. I'm not married with kids and I'll figure out a way. And he said the same thing. It was bizarre. Like, what's your next move? What are you going to do? And uh, I got so nervous. My palms were sweating. And it was just one of those moments in life that I, I got to go. I got to go for this. I don't want to credit. I, I, you know, it's just fate that I'm here by myself with him. And I just said it. I blurred out. I said, I want to be an agent. My dad said, I should talk to you about it. He's like, hmm. He's like, that's interesting. He goes, you have a good entertainment lawyer. I was like, no, I don't know any, but I could probably find one. He goes, such rough in his face. He goes, okay, I'm going to tell you what. You know, I love you. You're a good kid with a great heart. You made a mistake. And you know, I know all about making mistakes. And I love your family. Uh, I suggest you get yourself an entertainment lawyer. Send my office a deal memo this week. I'm going to give you two years to represent me. But if you don't use those two years to knock down every door to bring in all the celebrity clients you can, you're not going to make it to the two years because I'm going to fire you. Because life isn't how successful I become, Darren. It's how successful I make you and everybody else around me. That it's a domino effect. And you have to understand that the foundation of your business is all sorts of opportunities to leverage and have different revenue streams and different stars from all walks of life because it all meshes together. Sports and music and entertainment. And 
I, I was just like stunned because I'm like, is, is he actually like in a way telling me like to exploit him? Like I was just like nervous at first. So like after we got done with the appearance, I called my dad up and he goes, because what a, what, what a special man, Magic Johnson is there. And he goes, a hundred percent. That's what he's saying. And uh, within like a week, I hired a publicist that borrowed some money from, from some friends. And, you know, I was in the New York post two days later, super agent of Prince marketing group named the company Darren Prince on magic Johnson as his first client. My ego again, 25, 26 year old broker than broke kid thinking I'm on top of the world. My dad calls me up right away. I'm all excited about the internet post. He goes, let me, let me humble you real quick. You haven't done a marketing deal your entire life. You're nobody's super magic is super. That's why they're calling you that. So remember that. And that really, you know, home and, uh, from there, Joe Frazier was second, Chevy Chase was third, Pamela Anderson was fourth, Dennis Rodman was fifth. And, you know, I uh, kept the relationship with Larry Bird. And I, I, I either went back to relationships I had from the memorabilia business or just start creating new ones. And then through the years, it's been incredible. Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, Charlie Sheen, Roy Jones Jr., Carmen Electra, the late Burt Reynolds, the late Evil Knievel. Um, you know, Denise Richards, it's, uh, you know, Scotty Pippen, it, it, it's, it's been unbelievable. And, you know, it doesn't seem to me like it's been actually 25 years, but we've, we've always had every client get paid, never got involved in a, in a legal situation. We're very, very careful with our contracts and doing our due diligence to make sure it's the right partners for the right clients. So Roy Jones Jr. So, client who's obviously got something special right now happening with Mike Tyson coming up. And uh, yeah, it's been a blessing. But the biggest thing to me, man, like the, the, the money is great and the excitement and the fact that I'm able to take care of people now that I love and people that work for me, but it's the relationships that you get out of it. You know, Jerry West, another client who was here yesterday at my place, Dominique Wilkins. I had them both on the phone together. And you talk about like leveraging and those moments just to hear the love fest and the respect between Jerry and Dominique Wilkins on a 10 minute call. Like those are the moments, you know, I've, I've found myself on this journey in recovery. And while the money is important, allows me to take care of people. If I lost everything, I know I'd be good because I found happiness within me. I'd be heartbroken. I couldn't take care of the people I need to take care of. But uh, at least I could say I did it for a long enough period of time. I took care of who I needed to take care of. Yeah, I love that. It's just, it's not about the accruements necessarily that go along with it, although they are nice. But you have built lifelong relationships with these people. And it's not just quit pro quo relationships. It's like Mm -hmm. reaching out to people and getting these deals done and building trust for decades to get to where you are, to be able to kind of call the shot, so to speak, and hire staff and have wonderful support people, even down to your assistant who was fantastic that set this interview up. I mean, it's all encompassing. And I've heard you say, you know, before that, you wouldn't ask somebody to do something that you haven't already done or would consider doing. And I guess the big question is, how do you learn to manage all of these different personalities? My God, from Charlie Sheen over here to, you know, Carmen Electra. to whole, I mean, how, how do you learn these personalities and and how they tick? And how do you mitigate all this and, and learn to deal with each individual person so uniquely? I think the writer in my book, uh, Kristen Davis, uh, who's a genius, she wrote a masterpiece. I can't take credit for it. I mean, Anna David, my publisher, uh, both spiritual sisters of mine, who said a co-writer. I mean, yeah, co-writer. I did a lot of speaking. She put it together and she, she mentioned it to me one day that 
I think you realized at a certain point you had a special talent for managing special talent. And that, that, that really hit home. I think a lot of that came from my dad. You know, he always made it about personal. If Joe Frazier was in town or whoever it might have been, you know, always take them for dinner, lunch, do personal things when it's their birthday, anniversary, something going on with their wife, their kids, you know, send a little message, send something to the house. And I think that really brought a closeness uh, of, of, of trust where I can really understand the real people. Like the blessing of knowing the real Irvin Johnson, not Magic Johnson. Uh, my boy, Bo, was one of the key people at my company, uh, Chris Bobolo. Uh, last Monday, we're in Clearwater Beach at a three-hour dinner with Hulk Hogan. But to me, he's Terry Bollea, just the three of us. Um, you know, I also have an incredible team behind me. You know, I've got my boy Steve Simon and Nick Rodasco and my girl Mercedes, you know, handles Roy and all the craziness right now and Matt. And I've got Julia and Matilda, my boy Big Will. I mean, my boy Frankie, I go back with since I was 15. They all just make it easy for me. Because I think if I put my recovery and my spiritual wellness journey advocacy first, it's a lot easier to deal with all the different personalities. But there are days I got to put me first and that's got to be my focus. So they pick up the slack. And um, that's key because I can't do it all myself. Self-care is obviously super important to you and should be important to everybody, right? Mental health and self-care. And now you don't have the opioids and all of that. You work out, obviously. I think, I mean, yeah, and that's motivating in itself right there. There's no excuse. But how do you... What does self-care look like for you as we wrap up here? How do you just take care of Darren? Strip away all of this things that you have, the team, the money, which are all important and it just all sympathetically works together. But how do you take care of yourself now? Like what what does your routine look like to keep yourself sane? Because I'll be honest, like I just reading your client list, hearing you talk about it, that's intimidating in itself. Good lord. I mean, just having to manage all of that. So how how do you take care of yourself? I just put myself first. The day starts with me working out. I try to keep the best diet I can. Um, like I said, the Zoom meetings are super, super important. And speaking of people in, in and out of recovery every single day, trying to help people that, that need it right now. Um, you know, before this pandemic, I was out. I did 57 speaking engagements last year. Um, I'm affiliated with two incredible organizations, Banning Treatment Center. And you want to talk about a gift, being able to try to get people treatment that can't afford it. I've got my own toll-free call number, which is 8886-DARREN and Elite Home Detox. Um, I'm able to help people right now in their house. You know, that gives me the ability to finally get self-esteem by doing esteemable acts. And that also allows me to take care of myself because those are just incredible blessings. You know, it's something I never would have focused before. I would have been focusing on me for selfish reasons. Now I do it some good to everybody else because I cannot forget the date on July 2nd, 2008, when I was sick and broken and suicidal. And I called out to God for help like I never did in my life. And um, he heard me and he gave me this brand new life. And what I thought was the worst day of my life turned out to be the very best. And I want to give that away to people. But I got to put myself first to a degree to make sure I've got that within me and that spiritual energy to make sure whether it's my clients or people struggling with recovery or stress or anxiety. If I do that, it's easy. I mean, I've so many people that watch me during the day and they'll see me with some of my celebrities and talking to people and recover them. How do you do it? I'm doing it so long right now. It just feels normal for me every day. I think if I didn't have it, I would go nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the book is aiming high. 
how a prominent uh oh I lost my notes here. We'll back that up. Aiming high, how a prominent sports and celebrity agent hits bottom at the top. Again, we'll make this fantastic book available to everybody in our show notes. This has been a lot of fun, my friend. It's been a highlight moment for me uh, talking to you. Been been following you for a long time, and you're an inspiration to me. But I know to millions and millions and and for those who will listen to this episode. Darren, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Keep kicking butt. That brings today's episode to an end. Thanks for choosing to stop by and listen. If you enjoyed the show, consider sharing it with a friend and hitting the subscribe button. It's absolutely free. The views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect those of the host. Until next time, cheers.